0: up where we left off last week. If this is your first time here. We're going through the Gospel of John this fall. Last week we talked about John 1, which we boiled down to basically a message that was saying Christianity, or what John is describing in his Gospel, has nothing to do with religion. He essentially said in chapter 1 that if you take all of the religions, and religions like secularism, which is a faith-based practice, or moralism, or spiritualism, if you take all of those and you take the lowest common denominator of what they're all saying to you, all of them are saying, leave the darkness, come to the light, be enlightened. Darkness, bad. Light, good. Do less of this stuff and do more of this stuff. Be like this. That will devastate you. Because what all, any religion, what any secular worldview, what that will do is it'll send you out this door with just you. Even if it's Southern Christianity, that talks a lot about following Jesus's example, but never talks about Jesus giving his life to make you new. All of those things are devastating. Run from them. You'll be on this hamster wheel, exhausted and in the same place you were, except demoralized. That's darkness. When John says the light came into the darkness, he means that stuff too. Christianity is antithetical. It's totally different from that. John says the light has come into the darkness. This darkness, my darkness, your darkness. But the darkness was no match. That's Christianity. Not a moral imperative, but a historical mercy that is shared with you freely. One will enslave you. And devastate you, one will liberate you and resurrect you. And if you're a Christian, and this is reminding you of something that's already happened to you, um, leave the hamster wheel. The work is finished, the light has come into the world, and He is the life of mankind. That's what we talked about last week. Let's pick up the story in John 2, the very next chapter. Um, there's three things we'll talk about briefly. The first is what was Jesus' opening act? Because John 2, the wedding at Cana we're about to read, was Jesus' debut, as his first big public ministry thing. Why? Or, sorry, what was it? Number two, why that? He could have chosen a lot of stuff. Why? Making water into wine at a wedding. And the last thing is, how did his opening act actually point to his closing act? So, let's read it. Follow along with me so you can see this for yourself. John 2, verses 1-12. through On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, dear woman, that's the sense of the Greek there, dear woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each of them held 20 to 30 gallons, These are big things. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, the MC, the, the head guy running the party. So they took the wine to him. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew, The master of the feast calls the bridegroom. He thinks he's responsible. He pulls him over. He says, everyone saves the top shelf stuff, or everyone serves that first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the best stuff till the end. This, what I just read, was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him or believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and sisters and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help to do the simplest things. To hear your voice, we need your help to rightly apprehend ourselves, for your word to get inside, past the defenses, past the hardness, the crustiness, the rust. We need mercy, mercy, mercy. So we raise our voice to one who has a reputation of being kind in the face of our need. So be kind with what we need tonight, and we pray for it. Help us in your name. Amen. Well, I'm not going to linger here, but I'll still make the comment. It's been a dark year, right? Uh, We've seen the worst that the world has to throw at us. But if you've been paying attention, you've also seen these little blasts of light Over the past few months that kind of come into this darkness we've been experiencing. Did you see Italy around March? Uh, It was, the country was just getting clobbered by COVID. Um, People were just dying by the thousands every day. Did you see the night where it seems like every Italian walked out onto their balcony, and apparently they all have musical instruments in their house. They brought out their accordions, and trumpets, and violins, and mandolins, and they're just all like high-rise apartment buildings, tons of them in an area, they're all singing national songs and anthems. That happened in Paris, it happened in London, it happened in New York. Did you see the elderly men or the elderly women who went up to the glass windows where their spouse was on the other side in the Alzheimer's ward to press their hand up against it and sing to them? Maybe you participated in a drive-by birthday party or something, Um, We saw these little bursts of light. In dark times like this and summers like this, we've needed some good news, right? Which makes me very grateful for John Krasinski, because he gave us some good news this summer. Did you see it? He put up his first episode late March. And at that time, those first episodes or so were pretty simple, just a bunch of good news stories. Like, desperate, we got to have, there's got to be something good still going on out there. So he compiles all those stories and basically has his little news program, Some Good News. Well, uh, a couple episodes in, in I think early May, after he'd gotten a few under his belt, he started creating the good news, not just reporting it. There was a couple who had got engaged recently and uh, had had tweeted him a video of the proposal, the guy's proposal to the girl. They were huge Office fans, so he basically, this guy replicated to a T, Jim's proposal to Pam from that famous episode in the office. He tweeted it to John Krasinski and he said, will you come to our wedding? So Krasinski reaches out to him at some point when he's making these episodes and he's like, I want to have you all on. And they're like, this is amazing. He got the tweet. He's having us on some good news. So they come on there and the beginning of the episode is just them like he's like, that proposal video was awesome, how'd you do it, tell me about it, and he's just, he's an amazing guy, so he's just really like on the flame of their joy, and uh, he says, well, I actually, I have some news to share with you, um, you asked me a question in that tweet, you said, would I come to your wedding, and I want to tell you, I will come to your wedding, so there's one catch, you have to get married right now, like today, and they're just like, the neurons are not computing what he said, so he holds up her certificate. He said, I just got ordained a few minutes ago before uh, this episode started online, so I'm going to marry you guys, and you got to do it now. But then he goes, oh, but wait, family, so you can't get married without your parents here. So um, you've, you've got parents still alive, right? Yeah, and he's like, okay, boom, and they pop onto the Zoom screen. What about your parents? Boom, here they are. Well, We can't do this without a wedding party. Everybody has a a best man, a maid of honor, groomsmen and bridesmaids, boom, boom, boom. There's like 15 people on the screen now. And he's like, uh, Jenna Fisher really wanted to be a part of this too. So he brings Pam in and she's there too. She's like, this is awesome, congratulations. And they're listening to this. And he goes, well, we need some pre-service music. And I I know Zach Brown and Zach Brown just wrote a great song that's gonna fit this. And so, Zach, are you there? Boom, Zach pops up, and he's sitting there picking away on his guitar in his living room this song that he wrote for that moment. And then they get to the big moment, and, and Krasinski goes, well, if you can't be such huge Office fans and walk down to the aisle to any song except what was on that famous Office episode when they're getting married and they walk down the aisle, and so he pulls out this speaker and he sets it on his desk, and he starts playing that song and he starts dancing to it and then if you've seen the video it's amazing oscar pops in kevin is there dwight is there with some random person in his kitchen that he kicks creed is there creed is there ryan is there jan is there michael is there meredith is there all the people and they're they're dancing coordinated to this to that song just like they did in the episode each in their living room or their backyard or whatever And if you could see, it's hard because there's so many people on the screen at this point. The couple is like about a centimeter in the top left corner. If you could see them, she's crying, and he's got perma-smile on his face, just amazed at what is happening live on Zoom right in front of their faces. Here's the thing. John Krasinski has friends in high places. He's somebody, right? He can pull stuff like this off. And in this particular episode, in this moment, he's using all of who he is, all of what he has, and all of who he has access to, and he's leveraging it. He's putting it out there. He's putting it on the line to smuggle some joy into the disappointment of this couple that gets married in a pandemic and can't really get, or sorry, engage but can't get married, and how to keep postponing it. And he smuggles in light into this darkness, good news into this bad news. And I don't know for how long, but probably for months, he banished the darkness. What I read to you just before I told you that story is Jesus Christ using all of who he is, all of what he has, and all of who he has access to, and he's putting it out there on the line to bring joy into the midst of this young couple's disappointment, into their shame, into their humiliation. He's bringing light into darkness. He's bringing life into a party that had died. He's using, he's somebody who can do something. You and I couldn't put on a Zoom show like that for this couple. I couldn't do a single element of that. Couldn't even get their parents on there. And only Jesus could do what I just read to you here in John 2. What we heard about in some good news is just a faint glimmer of what goes on here. And it all went down in a little village mountain town in Israel called Cana in the Galilee region. And before we go any further, we got to talk a little bit about first century Jewish weddings so we can appreciate the magnitude of some of this stuff. First thing, it's a communal culture, uh, which means that when a couple got married, uh, the town is super tight-knit, especially a town the size of Cana at that time. Everybody would have known everybody. It's Mayberry everybody knows everybody so they would have known these like this uh, little teenage couple getting married when they were rug rats rolling around they know their parents their family their their clan all of that stuff the whole town came to weddings why because the village is growing the social fabric is getting tighter as families united to family they know this little couple's going to have kids one day and they're going to help with the harvest and the economy's going to go up it was a ginormous celebration And it was really long, too. First century Jewish kind of custom or uh, traditional wedding ceremonies lasted at least a week. Not like 24-7. It was kind of like Welcome Week where there's like a huge event every night. It was kind of like that. You show back up every evening and there's feasting and laughing and dancing and drinking and all of this stuff. That's the scene that's being described here. Here. And this couple was probably some kind of a teenage couple. The average age of someone getting married there for a guy was probably late teens, and for a girl, early to mid-teens. And so that's, the, that's what's going on here. And there's this massive problem, or at least Mary, little virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine the scene? Mary going up to Jesus, shaking him on the shoulders. They ran out of wine. And he's like, how's this my business? He's like, my hour has not yet come. And I think part of what he's saying there is to his mother, Mom, I came to do my father's will, not your will. I'm not an errand boy to do magic tricks to fix little problems like this. And he also says something we'll talk about a little bit later my hour has not yet come. Now, listen, Mary comes to him, I think, as a mom asking her boy to do a chore, an errand. In that brief interaction, I think Mary walks away hearing Jesus and understanding she believes in him. She knows him. It's like if you were friends with John Krasinski and you knew about this down and out engaged couple who couldn't get married, you're like, John, you've got to hear this story. Why? John could do something. He's a celebrity. He knows everybody. So Mary goes to Jesus, and I think she walks away with her faith deepened. He can do something about it. She's just open-handed now. Not Jesus do X, Y, and Z. Jesus, be Jesus, do something. So she turns to the servants and says, hey, whatever he tells you, go do that. So that's this encounter there. And then after that, John describes what went down after that. A quick side note, this has to have happened. John is presenting it to you as it happened. He's not, oh, it's symbolic or metaphorical or hyperbolic or fiction. Uh, Reynolds Price is a a Duke University scholar, um, biblical scholar. He's written a lot about the Gospels, and he said this has to be history. This has the sound and the ring of the way history is written, nonchalant, just putting the details out there. How would a fiction writer have written this? Number one, a fiction writer probably wouldn't have begun this epic story with this scene, this like the two teenagers who were embarrassed. Does it really rise to that level of like starting out your gospel? he says it must have been true. Who else, would have start, who else would have put it there? The second thing is, here's how a fiction writer would have portrayed this event. Something along the lines of like a Harry Potter-ish like, and then Jesus saw that the wine had run out, and he walked over to the stone jars, and he looked at it intently and locked eyes on the water, and he said, let there be wine. And there was wine. Behold, everybody was amazed, and they bowed down and said, you are God, Jesus. We worship you. That's the fantastical account. That's what a fiction writer would do with this. And what you get from John is look pay attention to the way he describes this. Nobody at this party knows what has happened except the slaves, Jesus and his mother. The couple never knows, the MC never knows. Nobody knows. Jesus works in the shadows. He's not stealing the show. He's not saying, hey, uh, pulling the mic away. It's like the Kanye moment. He takes the mic from uh, Taylor. It's not one of those moments. Jesus knows this is their moment. I'm not stealing that from them. He's working in the shadows to just super abundantly resolve and fix this lack, this problem that had arisen. So the way that it actually happened, Jesus is in the shadows. It's not this big like David Blaine magic trick moment, everybody gather around abracadabra. And even grammatically, John hides the miracle itself. We don't, John never tells us what it actually looked like, Jesus performing the miracle. He describes it in the least sexy verb tense you can possibly have, which is past passive. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, or the water now become wine, you're like, whoa, 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 fiction writer says, that's the centerpiece. Don't bury it in like past passive verb tense. Why does John do that? Because that Jesus performed this miracle is not his main point. So what's his main point? You can tell if you read it carefully. What details does John include? What does he tell us? What does he pull into the spotlight? The first is the quantity of the goodness that Jesus brings when the wine runs out. The quantity. This was one of those where were you when moments. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I finally did the math in John 2. Cheltenham Avenue, Chick-fil-A in Philadelphia. I was scarfing down dinner on the way to the seminary Christmas party and I was reading my Bible, so I had like John 2 pulled up, and I was in my late 20s by this point. For the first time in my life, I'm like, why is John telling us how big these jars are, how many jars there are, how full they were, what the volume was? Like, this seems odd details for a guy who didn't even tell us what it was like when the miracle happened. So I pull out my phone, and I do the math. 20 to 30 gallons times six jars. He says they were this full, and I'm like, okay, whoa, that's a lot. And then I did the gallon to liter calculation. How much wine did Jesus make? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 680 bottles, which is more than 100, and, it's more than 100 boxes of wine, like the big boxes outside of liquor stores. That's like a U-Haul truck full of wine. So, okay, this is probably going to be a big detail that's going to factor into the significance and the meaning of this miracle that Jesus is doing. He's bringing a superabundance of wine, and it's not just any wine. What other detail does John draw attention to? He spends a lot of ink talking about what happens once the water had been turned into wine. They take it to the sommelier, the, the guy in the room that knows wine, who can sniff two buck chuck from 10 miles away and turn up his nose. This guy knows top shelf liquor. So they bring it to him, he's an MC. he does this for a living, and he says, where has this been the whole time? You did it all backwards, groom. You're supposed to get this stuff out there before they get drunk and can't taste it anymore. This is the best stuff I've ever had. John is drawing attention not just to the quantity of the goodness that Jesus brings when the wine runs out, but the quality. Also the effect. What's the effect of this miracle? Um, well, they didn't even know it because they didn't know a miracle had happened, but the party goes on. Jesus Jesus didn't just save the night. I mean, he finances this thing into the next month. They're like, I guess we got to keep coming back next week. We got a lot to finish drinking. He bankrolls this thing. He elongates the party, deepens the joy. He saves this little teenage couple from mortifying humiliation. Remember, the whole town is there, it's your most public moment of your entire life. Running out of wine like they did is like getting your pants pulled down in that very moment, and everybody sees your embarrassment. They would have said, oh, they've always been super poor. That family's been poor forever. They can't even get two days into a party. Or they're like, what idiots? How do you you miss this up? It's your moment. You know the whole town's coming. The effect is this couple doesn't even know it, but Jesus has in the shadows run interference to intercept from them the shame and the embarrassment of what was surely coming had that not been remedied. Let's slow down for a second. Catch your breath, let this stuff sink in, and I wanna ask you a couple of questions of application before we finish with the last two points. First question, whether you're a Christian or not, whether this is the first churchy ministry thing you've ever been to, or you grew up your entire life every Sunday in church, how have you imagined Jesus? How have you imagined him? How would you imagine him in this moment? There's a lot of options. Some of us, you might imagine Jesus as the bored, bland guy in the corner who's like, oh my gosh, when are they gonna get in the car and drive away so we can go home? just not engaged at the fringe. Some of you might think he's scowling at the people on the dance floor for the dances that they're doing and having a drink in both hands, and he's just judging people. This kind of this monologue of just judgment coming out of them. Who Look at these people. Look at what they're doing on the dance floor. Some of us, you might think Jesus is fully engaged. He's fully human. He's there. He's there with his family. He's having a good time. He's dancing. He's got a smile on his face. He's laughing. He's living it up every night, night after night. But here's my question for you. If you tend to see him as the bored guy in the corner wondering when is this going to just going to be over or the guy who's kind of judging what's going on, if you find in yourself that tendency to see him that way, the New Testament is full of people who saw Jesus that way. They were known as the scribes and the Pharisees. And they just could not mentally grasp how that could be God. A friend of sinners? Someone who, on whom the reputation of being a drunkard, though he wasn't, but the reputation stuck. They just, there's no way. They're like, God would never come to a party like this. God would never be, you know, two hands with wine. He'd never be dancing. John wants to ask you, are you more buttoned up and austere and prudish than God himself? If you have seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus says. He, I and the Father are one. Colossians says he's the, 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 the image of the invisible God. Hebrews says he's the radiance of God the Father. This is Jesus. This is God the Father. This is the Spirit alive with joy, fully engaged with all the other people here. If you you can't imagine a, a God who celebrates, a God who enjoys being around people like this, there's a theological problem. And it's of the same strain of what went through the Pharisees' hearts. And we've got to address that. And John is helping you by showing you Jesus right out of the gates among his people deepening their joy in this moment. Now, some of you are thinking, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. God, Jesus came to party. He did what? He made how much? Your math's gotta be wrong. And you're like, you're imagining like the gates to downtown just opening up in like shimmering bars and parties during Warhead does not want you going to. And this question, this, this passage asks you a different question. The question John asks you or Jesus asks you, is don't you know the wine always runs out? Don't you know at the end of every raucous night downtown with you and your boys, or you and the girls, don't you know it's followed by a morning where you just know it's just hollowness, where deep down you know the only reason we're friends is because we have this kind of faux camaraderie that we've developed on these escapades, but I'm so lonely. That's what John asks you in that particular moment, is don't you know the romance always runs out? Don't you know the GPA and what it's able to do for you in your life is going to run out in a year or two because nobody really cares what your GPA was after that first job? He says, don't you know that's running out very, very fast? Don't you know your health is running out? Don't you know your earning potential is going to run out one day? Don't you know your body is going to run out? Don't you know social status or social satisfaction is going to run out? And where are you going to run when the wine runs out? Where do you run when the friendship runs out, when the romance runs out, when the the escapade downtown wears off, or you graduate and that's not socially acceptable anymore? Where do you go when it all runs out? Do you make a, a subconscious beeline to Jesus Christ like Mary? Not so much, I need more wine, but Jesus, we need you to be you in this moment. Those are great que- those are Those are deep questions. They're cutting questions that lie on all of us. Where do we run when the wine runs out? I know I said this would be a little rest, a little pause. It might not have been restful, but let's push on to these last two points quickly. We talked about what was his debut his first act, but why? Why a wedding? Jesus could have chosen anything. He could have walked on water, he could have like levitated over a river or like flown or something to be like, hey, I'm God. He could have kind of gone up and done some giant teaching. John says he chose this to be this first sign to manifest his glory, to, to show himself for who he is. He chose this. Why this? Why the water into wine? Why at a wedding? Uh, What was he signaling? Because a sign, like, if this is a sign that says Grand Canyon six miles ahead, this isn't the Grand Canyon. All it says is it lies ahead. The yield sign is before you need to yield. It says, hey, coming up, you're going to need to yield. If this is a sign, it means this event is not, not not all just about this event. It's pointing to something that's extremely relevant to you, something that lies ahead on the path. Here's what he's pointing to. So that Christmas party, go back to that with me, my seminary Christmas party. I finished my dinner. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of wine. I walk into the party. All the professors are there, all the, my, st- my fellow students, all my friends are there, and it's at a house. It's like a huge house party. I walk in there, and I run immediately into Mike Kelly, who's my Old Testament professor, and Mike's awesome. He's a friend, just an incredible guy, and I, I go straight up to Mike, and I was like, Mike, did you know how much water Jesus made into wine in Cana? And without missing a beat, his eyes get this big, and he goes, have you read Amos 9? And I was like, I didn't know there was an Amos in the Bible. No. So he goes from memory, he reads this, Amos 9, 13, written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the wedding at Cana. Behold, the days of the Lord are coming, Amos wrote when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains of Israel will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. They'll be so saturated by this abundance of wine, so soaked in it, they can't absorb more. It's just flowing right over the top now. I will restore the fortunes of my people. And then in Joel chapter 3 verse 18, Joel says something similar. And in that day, that day that the Messiah comes, that God enters in to restore the fortunes of his people, to make the bad stuff go away, the sad stuff come untrue, to establish his reign. He says, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Jews, looking back at the wedding in Cana incident, in retrospect, the pump was primed. They knew a mark of the Messiah, a sign that He's here. Finally, finally, the darkness is going to be banished and conquered. The sign, the mark, the signal was a superabundance of wine festival wine, celebratory wine. That's really what wine is for having parties with people and feasting and celebrating. And that was the mark of the Messiah coming, that God was going to finish what He started through Jesus, the Redeemer. That's what Jesus was signaling. But that only answered half of our question. That answers the why water into wine stuff. But why? what about the at a wedding? At a random teenage couple's wedding? I don't even know how well Jesus knew these people. And it, it seems like he didn't show up there planning to do this. He was kind of dragged into it by mom. Why a wedding? Because the Messiah was never just gonna be this teacher or leader or healer the Messiah was never even just going to be the one who resurrects you out of spiritual and physical death and makes you new again and alive to God. He was all of those things, but you know what else the Messiah was always prophesied to be? A bridegroom for the people of God, who was his bride. You go back to the, the big prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, it's all this talk about marriage, God marrying his people. So Jesus isn't just signaling. I'm the Messiah. He's signaling, I'm the groom. That's why this is going down at a wedding. Who are his people, if you're wondering? John said it last week. Everyone who receives Jesus, he gives the right to become children of God. Everyone who believes in him. That's what he's saying. Everyone that God has enabled to see him and to say, I'm in darkness, I'm stuck on the hamster wheel. And I thought that this was going to make you happy, God. Have mercy on me. I see that you've given me Jesus. He is my righteousness, not my hamster wheel of moral improvement. That's what it means to receive him, to believe on him. And John says those are his people. Those are the ones who've been made alive and are his bride. Or if you do that, we'll be married to him. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want you to imagine one more thing with me. At weddings, there's always the first dance. We know there was a lot of dancing here. What was Jesus Christ thinking at that wedding? I know if you've been to a wedding, if I ask you to raise hands, probably everybody here has been to a wedding by now. Everybody is thinking about something during the first dance. The brand new husband and wife are dancing together on the dance floor. Everybody's thinking something. The single people are thinking about the ex. Did I miss my opportunity? um, should I text her or call him? Or they're thinking, like, will I ever have this? Uh, hopefully the married people watching this are thinking about their spouse. <laughs> um, the engaged people are thinking about one day soon, that's gonna be me, me and my wife. Every single wedding I've been to since I've been married and had kids, I think of Adelaide, Evangeline, my two daughters, and Anna. I imagine back to our first dance, what that was like, and I think about my daughters one day dancing with another guy that I've just given her way to. Everybody's thinking about that kind of stuff during the dances at a wedding. What was Jesus Christ thinking when he's at this week-long wedding and he's seeing this couple dote on each other and hold each other and dance together, and you see that three-mile gaze in his eyes as he looks on like everybody else? What's in his mind? I'm 100% convinced. I guarantee you he was thinking about his bride. He was thinking about his wedding feast day. He was thinking about you, if you're in him. And I know one other thing he was thinking. He was thinking about his death. He was thinking about his death, because here's the thing, Jesus Christ did not marry the homecoming queen. He didn't marry Barbie or, you know, Miss America or The way the Bible describes the bride, God's people, it's a harsh term, is a whore. All throughout scripture, God marries that girl. The faithless one, the one who's like on a Monday, I love you so much, we're going to be great together, and on a Tuesday, he's like, I love all of y'all. The one who one day is like with him, and the next day is run away, and you're like, where'd you go? Fickle-hearted, foolish, wayward, in it and then out of it, never consistent, always one step forward, eight steps back. That is who Jesus came to marry. And that is who he's thinking about at this wedding. And because that's who he's going to marry, There's this giant obstacle between his engagement to his people, God's promises to marry his people, and the fulfillment of that, his actual marriage to his people. And it's another hill in Israel, about a hundred miles south, where what this wine pointed to will fall on the dirt and saturate the soil and flow off. John is writing this 60 years after Jesus ascended. It was crucified. John saw it was resurrected and descended. The church has been kind of up and running for 60 years. They've been practicing the Lord's Supper just like Jesus told them. This wine isn't simply pointing to the wine at that wedding. It's pointing to the purifying blood of Jesus. The Jews would have found it so odd that that they're drinking wine out of these really serious ritualistic ceremonial jars that hold cleansing water. Those jars is what you would wash the uncleanness off before you entered the house. It was signaling to you, you're not clean, you're dirty, you need to be clean before you can come in. And now they're drinking festive wine out of it. Jesus is signaling that wine, my blood, is what cleanses you, purifies you. Though your sins are like crimson, I'll wash them as white as snow, they'll be like wool. He's not just elongating the party and deepening your joy. He is accomplishing your purification that he might marry you. This is the last thing I'll say. Jesus doesn't marry the lovely girl. He marries the unlovely girl, and by marrying her, makes her lovely. He doesn't marry the lovable girl. By loving her, he makes her lovable. I don't know if you've ever met a couple where you kind of didn't like one of them. You're like, "Mm," but she's awesome or he's awesome. And you're like, why is she with him? Or why is he with her? And the way that they love the other and talk about the other and honor the other raises this person in your estimation. Their love makes them lovely. It's not because they were lovely they loved him. That is Jesus and his people. That's what's being signed and signaled at the wedding at Cana. That's why Jesus chose this to be the sign that shows you who he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help. So come now and show us who you really are. Manifest your glory. Show us that your hour when it finally came was not an hour of celebrating, but it was an hour of dying, laying all of who you were and all that you had on the line for your people to accomplish, not the possibility of the joy, but the the guarantee of joy, the guarantee of life with you, the guarantee of marriage to you. We ask this in your name.